So welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us on Colin for our new show, Unruly, with Ryan and Rob. This is your co-host, Ryan Knight, and I'm excited to be joined by our other co-host, Rob Bermudez. How's everyone doing today? And we have a special guest this week. Uh, please uh, help me welcome uh, author and actress and activist, uh, Tara Reed. Tara, uh, welcome to Unruly. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you both for having me. Yes, this is. I think this is the third time we've we've gotten together and done this. Uh, so thank you. I, I always appreciate your honesty and, and your courage. And uh, I, these conversations have been fun. So thank you for coming back. That means a lot to me, Tara. Oh, thanks. It means a lot to be here. So, and I you, we have a lot to talk about. So there's a lot happening. <laughs> Absolutely. So the big news this week, of course, is that after uh, almost a half century of being the law of the land. Uh, the Supreme Court is, is set to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Now, I actually wasn't surprised by this. Of course, it's shocking. I, I'm upset by it, but I'm not surprised because Republicans have very clearly and loudly been telling us for the past 50 years that they were going to do this. You know, this has been their mission to overturn Roe versus Wade. And based on this leak, um, it's looking like they've succeeded. Uh, now, for me, though, what, what the real question is, is what the heck have the Democrats been doing for the last 50 years? Right. Because while the Republicans have been plotting and planning and telling us that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. When you look at the other side of the aisle, what have Democrats been doing, right? Democrats could have fought to codify Roe v. Wade into federal law at any point over the past 50 years. They, they've had several majorities uh, over the past 50 years. They had them during the Clinton administration. Uh, they had them during the, Ob the, Obama, the Obama administration. In fact, Obama ran uh, and, and one of his promises was he, he ran on uh, codifying Roe v. Wade. And of course, he broke that promise. And let's also not forget that currently the Democrats hold uh, the, the House, the Senate and the White House. And they could be fighting right now to codify uh, abortion rights uh, into, into federal law. But of course, they aren't fighting. Right. Mm -hmm. They're doing what they always do. And instead of actually fighting the Democrats are using this SCOTUS decision to fearmonger and, and fundraise for the midterms. And this is what the Democrats always do because it's if we're just being frank, it's more profitable to fundraise off of these issues than to actually solve them, you know, and to use these issues to kind of hang them over your base and say, if you don't vote for us, you're losing all your rights. You know, they've been doing this to me ever since I've been voting. <laughs> and that's a 20 years now. Uh, so, Tara, as someone who has experienced firsthand uh, the betrayal of the Democratic Party when you bravely came forward uh, with sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden, are, are you surprised that Democrats are not even really putting up a strong fight to protect women's rights? Uh, or is this who the Democratic Party really is? A party that will gladly fundraise off the pain and plight of marginalized people, but won't actually stick their neck out and, and pass policies to improve and protect marginalized people's lives. Absolutely. You're right on every point. And the timing of this release um, is pretty suspect, right? Right when they need to do the fundraising for the fall. Someone had said to me, well, I don't think it's, um, I don't think the Democrats are doing that or had anything to do with it because 
you know, it's too early. And I'm like, no, this is exactly when they would do it because this is when they need to fundraise before the fall midterms and to try to get out the vote. And they want to mobilize voters that are not feeling um, love for Democrats right now because our, you know, I don't think the country could get much worse than right now. We have um, the highest inflation in 40 years. The Democrats have traditionally um, used the working party or, like you said, marginalized communities or any kind of flashpoint issue to try to divide and try to mobilize voters like they're going to do something and then they don't. They use it for a fundraising tool. That's all. And I mean, I worked as a Democratic campaign operative, as you know. And I was part of that kind of, and not win, not wittingly, and but learned the hard way that that's that's really the ultimate strategy. Is you try to get as much money as you can, you try to mobilize voters with some sort of a controversy or a flashpoint, a division that makes you distinct, and there you go. Now, in this case, you know, in my case, the misogyny came out and the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party about women's issues when I tried to come forward about sexual assault. You saw the reaction to Blasey Ford. You saw the reaction to me. When it's an elite Democrat, apparently it's never rape, right? They they just don't talk about it. And like Cori Bush just made a big announcement on, on Twitter again, and she's always talking about how she's a survivor and AOC, the same thing, but they ignore me. And I, I put my name up there and I said, I exist. I am here. I was a Senate staffer. I worked for Leon Panetta as a congressional intern. I exist and you can't ignore me. But that's what they do. They either use whatever it is, um, like in Dr. Ford's case, they used it again to galvanize Democrats um, against having um, someone, you know, obviously go through or they or they do, you know, look what they're doing here with this issue, which is to fear monger, as you put it, and fundraise. And at some point, we just need to realize that we need to stop enabling this behavior and and empowering them. Like this strategy has to stop working in order for it to change. What would you say if, if the Democratic Party was actually trying to be uh, an oppositional party to not just say Republicans are doing bad things, but we're actually going to try to stop it? And we're going to use our power to entrench these rights. What would you say the first steps and Hopefully this comes from a third party because, again, we've seen decades and decades and decades and, and the Democrats haven't acted on this. But what would that action look like? Would it be trying to have politicians mobilize people in the streets? Would it be um, what I guess seeing as how you've been inside uh, the machine, what, what's the most effective way to actually stand up for marginalized people? And especially right now, um, fighting against the, the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, it's an action-oriented agenda. I mean, like what Ryan said earlier about codifying, codifying um, they could have done that for 50 years and didn't because they've been using it to fundraise. Um, for like um, for working people, well, let's face it, Democrats have a disdain for working people and they've shown it. They clash shame every time they, they, the chance they get. Like they did it to me. They clash shamed me. It was Democrats that went after me, right? Mm. Um, oh, I remember it. They, they were talking. They, yeah. they were talking about your appearance. Or they were saying about like outfits you wore. I mean, it was very elitist. It was very classist. They were talking about things that had happened in your life as if that had any impact on the actual assault that was perpetrated against you. Oh, she has credit card debt. Oh, she must not be telling the truth because she struggled like every other American. Like it was so blatant to me. I remember that period. I, I'm so heated about it because I remember having you on my show. And and myself being a former lifelong Democrat, seeing the 
you know, it's, they, they were doing that to the Republicans when, when Republicans had been, you know, accused of sexual assault. But the moment it was a Democrat and it was the one who was kind of the head of the, of the Democratic Party machine, it was destroy you at all costs. And, and exactly. that really that really bothered me. And I mean, it, it was those demo the Democratic troll farms went after my outfits because not not for a class thing, but it was for sexualization. They were basically Again, it was one of those rape myths, go after what she was wearing. They were implying that my skirts mm. were too short or my blouses were too low. No, they weren't. I wore normal work clothes. And there's a video of me that got exposed by Australia 60 Minutes showing me in a work in a dress suit. Like, they're, they were lying. And not only that, but, like, they brought up, like, what, that I've struggled financially and I was a single mother. And they made it sound like a point of shame, right? Like, I had to borrow law books instead of purchase them. Well, law books can be up to $500 back then um, a piece. I don't even know what they are now. It's probably more. But it was a lot of money. Like, it was, like, you know, um, But it's almost like they forget be. that half the country yeah. right now is struggling. We have 140 yeah. million Americans who are poor or low income. And they're so out of touch with just... Just normal everyday people who, who are trying to keep their heads above water. Uh, no, I think it's a very, I don't think they are. I think they know exactly what's going on. I think it's a, it's a very pointed, it's very cynical. It's mm. very, it's very um, craven, but it's what's going on because there is a divide. Our middle class is disappearing and there's a divide between um, getting thinner and thinner between the poor and the rich. Right. Yep. Um, and this is, I think this is all planned. The elites just want us to be working, to not be as smart, to just have just enough brains to run those machines, right? Like the saying yep. goes, but yep. nothing more. And they definitely don't want us organizing. They def definitely don't want us having conversations like this or criticizing them. So thus they create the board, the governance board of disinformation and the ministry of truth, right? Um, to, to try to silence voices or they go after you know, like they did consortium news and they did, um, you know, mint press news and those individual journalists like Caleb Maupin and Ellen McLeod. They went after their personal PayPal accounts, froze their money. And those independent content creators, how they get their money is from their audience. So they're trying to kneecap using big tech, using censorship, using banning and deplatforming. And it's again, it's another tactic to silence. They know exactly how desperate things are getting. That's why they're getting scared and creating a, a board of governance about disinformation. Because well, yeah, we're it's, another, about it. it's another tactic to also deflect from the fact that they're not doing anything with their majority right now uh, to A, protect women's rights and B, also uh, help the working class. Look, every election since I've been voting, and again, that's for almost 20 years now, Democrats tell us that democracy is on the ballot, right? Or human, or basic human rights are on the ballot. But then when they have power, they don't actually fight for democracy or basic human rights. Instead, they fight for big business. They fight for the ruling class and they fight for the military industrial complex, just like the Republicans do. And we're seeing, as you just alluded to, Tara, we're seeing the consequences of all of that right now. As Democrats being in control of the government hasn't led to any meaningful change for marginalized people or for the working class, but instead has led to more war. We have, we've seen an increase in military spending. We've seen more censorship. We haven't seen uh, universal health care or Medicare for all. We're seeing no living wages get passed. We're seeing record corporate corporate profits, higher inflation, higher gas prices, and now Roe v. Wade is going to get overturned. So things have gotten worse for marginalized people and the working class since Democrats took power. And 
the thing is, is, and I think this is the part that confuses a lot of people because it used to confuse me, is that Democrats, sure, here's one thing I'll give the Democratic Party. They are great at virtue signaling and pretending like they stand with marginalized people and working class people. But when push comes to shove, the party doesn't actually fight to improve the lives of the people it professes to care about. Instead, the Democrats use the pain of marginalized people, uh, as I alluded to earlier, to fundraise and get power. And then once they have power, they legislate for Wall Street and their corporate donors, just like the Republicans do. And then they come up with a million excuses uh, for why they cannot fulfill their campaign promises and for why they cannot legislate for the people. So my my big picture argument here is what the heck did people think was going to happen in this country when you have the Republican Party who fights unapologetically for their agenda? And then you have the Democrats who make every possible excuse for why they cannot fight for their purported agenda. Because the truth is, is that the Democrats' agenda is actually the same as the Republicans' agenda. Their agenda is to serve the ruling class. So, of course, our country keeps moving further right. And, of course, Roe v. Wade just got overturned. And our country will continue to move right as long as we have these Democrats occupying the space of where a real left party should be. Tara, why do you think Democratic voters continue to be fooled uh, by their party and are unable to grasp that Democrats' refusal to fight back against Republicans because they serve the same corporate donors is really the main thing holding back all progress in this country? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one being is that people feel disengaged, right? Because and hopeless because there has been no change. And let's face it, Joe Biden said nothing will fundamentally change to a bunch of elite donors. And he meant it. The only thing that's changed is we entered another endless war. And that's the proxy war that Russia, that, that America is fighting against Russia using Ukrainians as cannon fodder. And that's let's right. face it, you know, and last week, $33 billion dollars. Um, sailed through with no, you know, citizen consent. That was manufactured consent by the Biden administration to send $33 billion to Ukraine. And there's a there's a snippet of his speech saying, well, the Ukrainians need pocket money. Well, I'm sorry, but but Joe Biden's not the president of Ukraine. He's the president of the United States. And people are suffering here. People are suffering hard. We have 700,000 people almost that are houseless. We have... Um, Rents that have gone up 10 to 20 to 30 percent in some areas. And as you mentioned before, inflation that's been the highest in 40 years and interest rates. And now you just saw a market drop because now, you know, the Fed's involved and who knows what's going to happen with with the volatility of that. Then they announce blithely that there's going to be a food shortage. Now, <laughs> we're facing all of this. And Joe Biden was supposed to be this great um, you know, what What did he say? He was going to save the soul of America. Well, I yep. met him. I worked for him. I knew him. I had that horrible personal experience. He's not interested in saving anyone's soul, not even his own. Mm. How do we break through to people? I think this is kind of the, the key thing is it's becoming harder for people to, to look away from the evidence in front of them and say, yeah, my life is actually getting harder. The bills are getting higher. My, my mm -hmm. wages aren't. But this perception that this American exceptionalism that is not even just in our country, globally, uh, people from other countries will look and say, well, America, you have all this excess. It's the land of the free and you have all these things. But what we have in this country is not resembling a democracy. How do we kind of break through to people to say that like, 
a Supreme Court being able to, to unilaterally come in and change laws without the American people really getting a say for it, that's not democracy. And these other countries in which we've decried and said these are brutal dictatorships like we've seen in Cuba and, and other countries, we we have this perception that that's not real democracy, even though the, the people of Cuba were able to redo their constitution and vote on it. And, and the vast majority of the people of that country came together and agreed upon it. So what what's the best method, I guess, to, to breaking through to these people, to realizing like, look, democracy isn't here. It's time to do something about it. Exactly. And I think, you know, and to your point about Cuba, they're also number one in literacy in the world. They put a lot of um, their efforts into education and to healthcare, and they have a really good infrastructure. But going on to what you were saying about voters, you know, I really think that people um, are seeing all the corruption. They're feeling disenchanted. But this is where the Republicans and Democrats both did something really interesting. They have made it so difficult for third parties. Like taking, um, you know, a third party candidate off the ballot. I think that happened in Pennsylvania and some other states. And so that was the Green Party. But they're not allowing a viable third party. And they're not, you know, and that's what people need. People need alternatives. And then they'll vote for those alternatives. I think if there were was a more choice, people would choose something different. Mm. But remember what they called Biden. They said it's the lesser of two evils. Well. Evil is just evil. And that's and I think that honestly, to be frank, I used to subscribe to that theory that the Democrats were the lesser of two evils. And that's why I voted for them for for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. But when I finally woke up in 2020 and saw that, you know, they were using Trump and blaming Trump for all of our problems when it was not Trump was just a symptom of of right of our corrupt system and that just getting rid of him and going back to normal that those are the same uh, that takes us back to the same environment that led to Trump in the first place. Right. So the, the Democrats just the, the way they ran in 2020, it was like once they beat Bernie and once they, they defeated the candidate who was kind of just representing a little bit of change that would have made life a little bit easier for working people like mm-hmm. Bernie wasn't even really fighting for anything that radical, which is why looking back like it's so ridiculous that Democrats fought harder to stop him than they've ever fought to for women's rights, for uh, for for uh, you know policies that help working class people than they've ever fought back a- against the Republicans. I mean, they that was really they were like, we're not going to have any social democracy in our party. You're not going to get anything, people. Forget about Medicare for all. Forget about a living wage. We are going to do everything to scare you to scare you know upper middle class people away from policies that would benefit everyone and we are going to continue to control this country that's what they said and 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 they succeeded when they beat bernie and that's that's really when i could not vote anymore for a democrat because i knew that joe biden joe biden is not even the lesser evil he is as chris hedges points out he is the more effective evil because the 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 democrats do they they basically just tell the american people they cre- they've created this narrative that like look you have to vote for us because we're going to save you from the big, bad, scary Republicans. But anyone who's actually paying attention to what's going on in our government will realize very quickly that that narrative of these Democrats being these saviors and these heroes that are going to save us from the Republicans is a flat out lie because actually the Democrats don't fight against the Republicans. The Democrats collaborate with these big, bad, scary Republicans to pass uh, laws that benefit uh, corporations and billionaires. And they just did this two days ago. While all this is going on with, with the SCOTUS decision, when that leak came out, 
Two days ago, the Democrats, the majority of the Democrats in the Senate voted alongside all of the Republicans to give uh, corporate, large corporations $130 billion tax incentive. And Bernie filed uh, um, basically an amendment to say, can we just get, you know, he filed like a, like a, just to add something to, to this bill, which is basically a big corporate giveaway. Another one of those that's bipartisanship in America and our government mm -hmm. is basically when the two parties come together and give massive benefits to their people who fund them, which are the corporations and wall street and the, and the billionaire class. Anyways, Bernie just wanted to add in that if we're going to give these corporations $130 billion incentive in federal aid, that these companies should not be able to ship jobs overseas. That was number one. And number two, that these companies should not be able to fight back against uh, workers forming unions in them. And they and all of the Democrats, pretty much all of the Democrats in the Senate and all of the Republicans voted down Bernie's uh, changes and gave the corporations this big $130 billion uh, giveaway anyways. If that doesn't wake people up to what they're doing in there. So this idea that Democrats are the lesser evil when they actively collaborate to give uh, money and, 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 and they actively use our government to enrich themselves and enrich their corporate donors. I'm sorry. No, the Democrats are not the lesser evil. They are the more effective evil because Look, the oligarchs love it when the Democrats are in power because they can. The wars have continued, the inequality has continued, the the, the giveaways to corporations and the corporate welfare has continued. But you have this entire liberal class out there thinking that everything's better now because the quote unquote good guys are in power. Like that's how dangerous the Democrats are. It's the deceit. It's the fact that they, again, like we said earlier, they. They give lip service and they kind of use this performative wokeness to say they care about marginalized people and working class people. When the truth is, the Democrats don't give a shit about marginalized people and about working class people. The only thing they care about is enriching their corporate donors and continuing this corrupt oligarchy. And so when I saw that, I'm like, forget about lesser of two evils. We've got to get people educated, informed, let them know what's going on with our government so then we can organize real movements that are independent of these two ruling class parties. Because we're not going to see a lick of change if we just continue to play this game of like, okay, Democrats, we'll vote harder for you, even though every single time you've had power, you don't actually even fight for us. Like, where did, how do the Democrats get away with this? It's so evil and manipulative. We have to vote harder for you, even though you have the majority right now and you're not fighting for us at all. Forget about fighting harder. They're not fighting for us at all. They're fundraising off of women losing their reproductive rights. That's what they're doing. Exactly. You're exactly right. Not only that, but a really um, awful thing that's happening in Louisiana is they're poised, of course, to ban um, the women's right to choose and ban abortions. But they're not only choosing to do that, they're going to criminalize it. They're going to call it murder. Mm. Um, so that means like any doctor performing that. And that also means that many women will be um, incarcerated for murder. And I mean, think about that. So this is how we, we are literally a year away from that reality by the time that decision comes down and, and gets the, I mean, so the misogyny is off the charts, right? It's, it's a war on the working class and on women, frankly, and on children too, because when you look at the fact that in this country, this is supposed to be the wealthiest country, we have um, one of the highest populations of child poverty in the world. Like, I mean, and we're not a developing nation. This is bizarre. 
Like, mm. and we also have some of the worst numbers as far as women that do give birth, as far as, uh, you know, deaths that are concerned in medical care. And it's all tied into capital, capital, you know, capitalist system that's not working. Like it's not working for us. And, um, you know, going back to what you said about Democrats, you know, they don't care about the working class. They have disdain. They use the working class and they use um, communities of color to try to um, get more votes, but they never then deliver. Right. And in fact, like, look at what happened with immigration, all the noise they made during the Trump administration about all they were going to do for immigration. What has happened? It's gotten actually worse. Yeah. Uh, Let's say that uh, I think we are going to see a lot of very unhappy people in the streets, uh, specifically regarding the, the SCOTUS decision. What can we look back at the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement and see that there was just a ton of energy and it got zero legislative accomplishments done? How can we do things differently, um, different forms of organizing or, or just in general? What can we do so that all that energy, all this anger that the working class has and they're mobilizing doesn't just kind of disappear into nothing and can actually help women in, in this country? Well, I think one of the things that we need to do is going back to my comment about immigration. It's like, um, you know, we need to recognize the fact of how racist this country is, the entrenched, the institutionalized racism. Right. And so, for instance, they're letting a um, hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees come to the country. And yet you have people seeking asylum at the border that they're turning away that are escaping very violent domestic violence you know, very um, violent circumstances trying to get help and are not getting help. And they're caging children at the border. And that was supposed to be resolved by the Democrats. And AOC did her big famous, you know, photo op there. Um, Nothing's been done to help those people that are suffering and or our own citizens that are suffering as well. And to your point, you know, I, I just think one of the things we can do is have conversations like this. Um, I actually got involved with Independent News Network, which is a bunch of content creators. And um, I couldn't, you know, after I my thing was censored and I, you know, I lost, of course, you know, the work with RT because of the censorship and the banning of RT. Um, when I was trying to do my own independent, um, it was hard. And so this group of people really, INN, they're fantastic. There's, you know, all different kinds of political views. But what is the same is just this need to you know, create independent content that can educate, that can help mobilize and help us get together. So I really, I want to give a shout out to them and, and to Indy and to Reef and all them, because they help me with the tech stuff too, which is really hard. And what I want to say too, is that, um, you know, support your independent, like support Ryan Knight, you know, support you, Rob, you know, support your shows. Um, and especially, you know, Substack, like go and support Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and, you know, Aaron Mate that are, they're pushing back against the empire's narrative, right? And for that, they get demonetized, they get censored, you know, all kinds of things happen. So if we just keep educating people, and we keep having these conversations, hopefully we can mobilize. And as far as, you know, the, um, the, as far as the right to choose, you know, I have, I wanted to ask your opinion about this, because I had a sneaking suspicion that, there was a purposeful leak to this besides the obvious Democrats getting benefit from it. Um, There's something about that leak. It's like they were trying to do it gradually so there wouldn't be riots. So they didn't do it all at once. 
I don't know. What What is your opinion? I could be totally wrong, but. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think that someone saw, saw what was going to happen and, and wanted to warn the country about, and basically, you know, yes, obviously it, it is going to be- benefit Democrats right now for the midterms or Democrats are trying to uh-huh. use this. Uh, but I think it was, you know, Honestly, I think they did it because it, this is shocking and it is going to set our country back. And um, I think it was uh, they wanted to warn and basically let, you know, but you're right. This the fact that it was leaked kind of deflates it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it yes. kind of let some air out of the balloon, because if this had mm-hmm. just happened, you know, when it got released, I think it would it would be you know, there would be. And, and, but let's be honest, like there should be riots every day in this country as long as we live in a nation that has two ruling class parties that subjugate the majority of the people in this country and that continue to use our government to enrich themselves and enrich their corporate donors while the people are being exploited uh, by these massive corporations who fund our politicians. I mean, there should be constant protest in the street. The problem is, is, is the people who are living at the margins right now, which is almost half the country, 140 million Americans are poor or low income. They don't have the bandwidth to not go to work uh, and, and protest because not missing, you know, a day or a week of work. That's literally, you know, their rent for the month and, and, and food uh, for their families uh, or, or health care. So or when, you get, when you get a population that is living at the margins in what's supposed to be the richest country on earth, it's exactly how they keep the people from rebelling. They, they keep the people so far down that they don't even have the ability to protest and fight back against the system. And we have to be very sensitive to that. You know, I and I am very sensitive to that because there's so many people who just they want to protest. They know the system is wrong, but they don't have the resources. Uh, and they and that is why mutual aid is so important. That is why the organizing piece of this is so important. So people can have the resources to band together and fight back against the corruption, because until we fight, until all of us come back together, until all of us who want to live in a nation where dignity and justice for all people is a reality. And that means red, blue, white, like whatever you voted for in the past. We got to bring all people together who want liberation for everyone. And And until we do that. There's going to be more of this divide and conquer. The rich are going to keep getting richer. And we're just going to see our society continue to crack until something happens where, you know, it it just there's a people just have had enough. And I will say this. Liberals said I remember this a few years ago. They said that if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe v. Wade, that they would be in the street and they would be rioting. Well, guess what? We just found out the Supreme Court's going to do that. And all these comfortable liberals who said that, they're not in the, in the streets rioting. No. So, you know, there's that piece of it, too. I mean, I, a big after the news broke, I saw all the people who I used to align with politically. What did they do? They got on Twitter and they literally blamed Jill Stein, who is the former Green Party candidate, and they blamed Susan Sarandon and third party <laughs> voters like me and you, uh, yes. Tara. They blamed yeah. us because despite the fact that, as we said earlier, the Democrats have had 50 years to codify abortion rights and they currently control the House, Senate and White House and they could fight right now to do it. But that's where these people are still propagandized and conditioned to defend the Democratic Party and to submit to the Democratic Party and to obey the Democratic Party that someone like Nancy Pelosi can support anti-choice Democrats. She's literally endorsing uh, a Democrat in Texas who is 
who is against abortion and and is pro-life, is anti-choice. And Pelosi is allowed to do that. And she won't have any pushback from the majority of liberals because that's what the Democrats have done so well. They've literally conditioned liberals that, again, we're saving you from the Republicans. Don't look and watch what we're doing in Congress as we collaborate with them to give more money to the corporations and to the ruling class. Don't watch our legislation, right? The CARES Act, which was a, which had no care for the working class and had a lot of care for the billionaire class. You know, they get people, they've create, they try to create this like moral righteousness. They literally have spun a fairy tale that, you know, the Democrats are the good guys and Republicans are the bad guys. When the truth is that we don't live in a fairy tale, we live in a nightmare. And both parties are bad guys. And both parties do not give a shit about us and do not care about anyone. And so they, the Democrats use that fear of the Republicans to get people to just obey the system, keep staying within this corrupt oligarchic system, and, and, and preserve the status quo. And so I, I want to get your thoughts, though, Tara. What was your reaction when you saw, you know, instead of actually like asking why Democrats aren't fighting and, or haven't fought for 50 years to codify abortion rights, like what was your reaction when you saw, you know, all these liberals get on Twitter and blame third party voters and Susan Sarandon, um, despite the fact that their own party for decades uh, has failed to deliver on any of their promises. Yeah, I tweeted about that because Susan Sarandon is, is, and Jill Stein is their convenient whipping post, along with me. Um, yeah, as, I, as they would, they said I ended Me Too, which had nothing to do with the Joe Biden. Actually, was the one who did it. But, um, but bear in mind something. A couple of things come to mind here. Um, you know, my reaction was this is typical hypocrisy and like in line with what I've been seeing the last few years. And also keeping in mind, too, that on Twitter, you see a lot of troll farms that are funded by the Democratic National Committee and by super PACs like Really America and, you know, Brooklyn Dad. Those are all very those are accounts that are paid to tweet and to tweet a message and to drive that message home and to spam anyone's accounts who's fighting you know, for something different or has a different narrative. And, and so that's that war on information again. So, you know, my reaction was beyond the paid bots that were obvious. It was just, again, this ridiculous sort of mind numbing, um, you know, propagandized people, like you said, that, that are not thinking for themselves or thinking critically or looking past a headline, you know, and the media is complicit with this. The media is complicit with the division in this country. They're complicit with the warmongering. If you watch some of the um, press conferences with Jake Sullivan or Andrew Blinken or with Jen Psaki, all the reporters do is ask, how many more javelins? When are we going to get more aid to Ukraine? Like, they don't ask about dipl diplomacy. They don't ask what they're doing for the working people. They don't ask of, of America. They don't ask what they're doing for any of the domestic agenda, which got tanked, by the way. Mm -hmm. And the cherry on top is this. Joe Biden was never pro um, women's choice. And in fact, he was quite the opposite. And he leans back on his Catholic background to excuse it. But for decades, he was against it and said he would vote for against the amendment. Remember when they were yep. talking about trying to codify it? Yeah. So the you have amendment. a president who's not for it. Then you have Nancy Pelosi, who's not for it. And, and not only that, but bear in mind, look at them. They're they're enriching themselves with hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, actually. And 
since when did becoming a congressperson or a senator mean that you become a multimillionaire and become an oligarch from, from that position? And, and that's the corruption that goes so deep. They are wedded to their money and to their corporate, you know, overlords. And that's who's running the country are the corporate overlords. And they're simply the puppets that benefit from it and get really nice ice cream and some good yachts and some good condos in Hawaii, who knows, or whatever. You know, but but, you know, we need to um, get the dark money out of politics somehow and not just talk about it, but demand it. And and that means not voting for these fools. That means yep. getting out and organizing and having shows like this and talking about it and getting other people to run who really do care about, you know, and I don't want to see um, AOC and Cory Bush and those people who really are empty suits. They're they're supposed to be representing working people they're supposed to be representing a certain progressive agenda and they're not it's 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 a it's a sham so it feels it feels to me a lot like we're waiting for people to wake up for enough people to wake up for enough people to say enough is enough and i think it kind of comes back to this it it almost seems the way i'm viewing kind of the the situation in this country it feels like we're on a razor's edge and people are going back and forth between well i don't really have a lot uh, I don't have a lot of security. I, I don't have the the money to be able to to take time off work or to take potentially getting arrested at a protest. So, you know, I, I got to play it safe. But at the same time, we're teetering very close to people finally getting to the point where they say, I have so little, I don't have enough. I don't have enough regardless. So I, I'm yeah. at the point where there's nothing to lose. And I'll be really curious to see over the next coming months and years, I hope we reach a point where enough people have kind of gone over the edge and said, look, look, I, I, we can't just continue to uphold these systems just because we're scraping by. I think that as, as the cost of living goes up, as wages stagnate, more people are going to be pushed to that decision. And I'm, I'm curious, what will be the final straw? Because we are on a direct path towards something big happening in this country. We saw kind of it happening with the, the Black Lives Matter protests that didn't materialize in the way that we wanted. But you can see there is this deep-seated unrest amongst a lot of people in this country, and I'm wondering if the you know the the SCOTUS overturning Roe v. Wade might be that thing, or if it's starting another unwarranted war, or or what is it going to be that I, that kind of drives people over the edge? I, I have an opinion on that. I think the flashpoint is going to be hunger. I think because they've already said they're already trying to prepare us that there's going to be a food shortage. I think that. The flashpoint is going to be lack of resources to even eat, to even get by. And I think that will take people. And I, and you, if you, you all know that the elites know, and you know that they're scared because they are putting laws in place as we speak in the last few years, starting with the Obama administration, especially to take away the freedom of speech, to take away the yep. freedom of press. Julian Assange, um, was was bold enough to expose the war crimes of the empire and he is imprisoned and gave up his freedom and now sits in Belmarsh prison and is now as an Australian citizen getting extradited under the you know act that espionage act for the US and he's not even a US citizen it, the overreach is unbelievable and he was um, one of the last bastions of freedom of speech and freedom of press, in my opinion. And once, you know, once Obama's administration made it clear and now Biden's that they're not going to release him 
that this they're, they're going to make an example of him and we're witnessing a slow public ex- execution, basically. You know, that's what we have to look forward to for all of us unless we fight back. And I think you're right. I think people are afraid. Like, if you go to jail, that's a lot of money, right? Who's going to bail you out? There's a fear of getting arrested. There's a fear now because Homeland Security has expanded what they consider extremists, you know, which include people that are, you know, active about the environment or active about animal rights. I mean, they, they've they've changed the domestic, domestic umbrella of what they define as terrorists to make it more vague and to make it broader so that they can go after people. And that is is a warning flag. And people, so I'm hoping, and I think it will happen within the next year that people will mobilize and start pushing back hard. But I hope it's in time because they're scrambling to put laws in place to silence and suppress and marginalize. Yeah, you're hitting on a very key point in all of this and that much of it is that, that we're seeing between the ruling elites and the working class is this kind of information warfare, right? Because, and that's also why we're seeing more censorship right now. Uh, because if the, if the people, if the majority of the people in this country actually knew what our government was doing, if they actually knew that basically our government was, that both parties use our government to, again, enrich themselves, enrich their corporate donors and fund these endless wars throughout the world, the people wouldn't support that. So how do you get people to support a warmongering fascist oligarchy? You control the information, right? So that's, and that, and the CIA has done this for decades. I mean, that's right. literally, the, there, there was a, a former CIA agent, uh, pr- probably two decades ago, actually. He leaked, he, or not even leaked, he just spoke honestly. Um, and he said that, you know, the purpose of the CIA, the function of the CIA is to run secret wars and to control the population uh, with information control. And that is why, I mean, and, and, and basically now, you know, the CIA used to basically plant stories to, to the mainstream media to basically get the media to cover what they want them to cover, especially in times of war. That is why you see them, sense, you know, completely censor Russia today. The, you know, the American empire wants people getting information from the American empire. They don't want any information from outside because, again, people would start asking questions. Um, but that is what's ended up happening is over the last few decades, the CIA doesn't even need to kind of tell the corporate media what to do, because now the media is essentially owned by six corporations. The media has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So they're basically just parroting the propaganda for the empire. And so my point here is that is where like independent media is so important. And and Tara, what you're doing with independent, uh, independent left news network, like that is really where this is going to be won by informing the population. By being brave like Julian Assange, letting people, letting the public know what is our government really up to, that they aren't serving us, and 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 to stop allowing them to divide us into red and blue, because when they, that is literally how they do it. Because while we're fighting, so busy fighting each other, we're not busy focused on the ruling elites in both of these parties who are rigging the system against us. And so that's really, you know. The revolution isn't going to happen in the streets until we can inform the public and until the public really knows what's going on. But as you astutely pointed out, that is why Biden created this new disinformation agency. That is why they're cracking down. And and you see Obama is going out now and he's giving speeches on the dangers of disinformation. Dude, I'm sorry, but uh, running yeah. a campaign where you promise the, the country hope and change and then you sell us all out to Wall Street. Uh, what do you call that? I call that disinformation. 
You know, right. you well, well, groaning civilians. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you're yeah. going to go out and, and try to say, like, now you care about disinformation, that was like your entire presidency was a disinformation campaign. You told us things were changing when things were only getting worse and you were only helping Wall Street. Like, and so that's where when you see now that the ruling elites, especially the Democratic Party, I see more censorship and more push for censorship from Democrats than I see from Republicans. I mean, we had Ron Paul today. He said that the biggest purveyor of disinformation in history is the United States government. He's, He's very absolutely right. And absolutely I, but I'm very right. disappointed that I have to agree with 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 Rand Paul because there's no <laughs> spines in the Democratic Party because AOC doesn't give a shit about the working class because she went from running a campaign where she was going to fight back against the establishment to now she's cozying up with the establishment. And we're all over here like, when does the fighting begin? Uh, so and this all leads us to. Again, information control, because there's a headline. We have to talk about this. There was a headline in the Wall Street Journal this week, and this is what the headline says. It says, the United States should show it can win a nuclear war. How absolutely wow. unhinged is our corporate media that it would write a headline that encourages nuclear war as if it wouldn't result in the death of millions of people. Once again, it's proof that the lunatics who rule over us are never going to save us, but they certainly are doing their best to try to kill us all. I mean, the only that's way psycho, to that's win- That's a psychopathic, that's a psychopathic headline. The and US you know should what? That's... Can win a nuclear war. Even yeah. after we still, we're the only yeah. country in history, by the way, who's ever used nuclear weapons. Let's not forget, mm -hmm. we bombed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are the right. only nation in history to, to nuke another country. And here we have the media, I mean, and I think we have to, like, the only way you win a nuclear war is to not have a nuclear war. So, Tara, my question for you is, what does it tell you about our corporate media and both corporate parties that they're always eager to fund war, provoke war, start war, and never eager to push for the only thing that can save us and save this world, which is peace? They never push for peace. Because peace doesn't line their pockets. And because Raytheon, mm. companies like Raytheon Technologies, the weapons manufacturers, are ruling the day. And when the media started cozying up with the intelligence community for access and for power, and then, then suddenly the intelligence community became the media. So you see a lot of these um, people going on talk shows. And what they're not saying is who they're working with, right? Like, yep. for instance, Leon Panetta, who I was an intern for, all of a sudden he's got vested interest in weapons manufacturing because he sits on one of the board and is becoming enriched by them. So, of course, they want to make more javelins. Of course, they want to send more rockets because their pockets are being lined. And it and it's it's disgusting. And um, and it's not only that, but it's frightening to think what foreign nations are looking at when they see a headline like that and what they're thinking now. Now, Russia does have nuclear weapons. What is their elite um, thinking about when they look at that, right? And that it's a threat. And because, and so does China. I'm sure China's diplomats look at that. We're not talking about any kind of making any kind of dipl diplomatic inroads or any kind of peaceful outreach with any of these countries. All we talk about is the unilateral power dominated by the American empire. Like we didn't want Nord Stream 2 to open um, that was, you know, going to be Russia based that's fueling Europe with gas, right, and oil and giving, um, you know, Nord Stream 2 was 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 going to have the gas go through and they were going to get enriched by that economically, right? Well, the timing of all the push by NATO and the push by America and villainizing Russia, Nord Stream 2 is now shut down. 
And that enrichment that was supposed to happen, of course, didn't happen. And now Europe is going to suffer for it because how are they going to get American oil and American gas, right? That's too, it's not, it's cumbersome. It's too expensive. And, you know, so, so we're in this war. Meanwhile, fossil fuels are destroying the planet and no one's talking about how we can collaboratively with other countries try to heal our planet. And, Hmm. and there are ways to do that while making money and no one's looking at that because the fossil fuel industry and the weapons industry are basically running our world economies. I think it's really interesting that the point of like Europe is going to get absolutely shafted um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to paying for uh, the energy to heat their houses. Uh, Thankfully for, for the Europeans, it's not the cold winters in which you have to be so reliant on it. But I I think there is this growing consensus amongst countries outside of, of the United States that really just believe like, we're tired of the United States pushing us around. And I know that China has been working on a new um, economic system to bypass Mm -hmm. SWIFT. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the sanctions enacted by the United States on Russia have kind of, I think, accelerated this push to um, end the the U.S. hegemonic uh, polarity, single pole, that the United States is number one. We control everything. We can use our, our financial leverage to put economic pressure and everyone kind of will submit to us and kneel to us. And I think we're starting to see some of these countries starting to push back. We've seen in uh, Pakistan with the, uh, the the coup that we helped or the no confidence vote that the United States was pushing for simply because uh, the prime minister, uh, Irman Khan, decided to talk with Putin and to talk with Russia to get mm-hmm, deals mm-hmm. for his country so that right. he made sure he has plenty of wheat and fertilizer and fuel and buying that in not the U.S. petrodollar, but buying with the with the ruble. So it, it is certain. And then and then what happened to him two weeks later, he was deposed. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I guess my point is, do you think that the the ending of uh, U.S. hegemony is on the horizon? And if it is, is it going to be happening in enough time or is the the U.S. empire that's in decline so uh, you know, so hell bent on maintaining control that they'd rather nuke everyone around them and blow the world up before they loosen their grip on control. Well, I think that there's been some talk and I've seen some articles about there are some people around Biden that keep telling him that there a limited nuclear war is possible. And well, limited nuclear war is not possible. It will, no one will win. And it is not possible. But if you actually have influential hawks that are trying to push that agenda or weapons manufacturers that are trying to push that idea that they could have a limited nuclear war. Or headlines um, that say the U.S. should show yeah. it and win a nuclear war. Like it, it's like all connected. Yeah. It is. It's it's very frightening. And, you know, it, it can't happen. I mean, we're just not going to um, if because because Russia has enough firepower back where it would be it would be crazy it would be suicidal but you're right i i think we're in the last gasp of capitalism we're at that end cycle right and it's the western empire is simply not accepting that we're entering a multipolar world and that's the crux of all of this so what workers need to do is workers need to mobilize they need to get in representatives that will work on domestic policy and infrastructure and then 
also extend foreign policy to engage in multipolar and not in imperialism. We don't need to spread our version of democracy anywhere else. We've already done enough damage. Look what happened when we do that. We destroy countries when we do that. We don't help. Like, look at Afghanistan. Look at Iraq. Look at Iran. I mean, we, we have been just destroying whole infrastructures rather than building our own and cooperating in a world way. So I think really what the solution here is for workers in the United States to mobilize and get other representatives in the power who can reach out and participate in a global economy as a multipolar, as a partner, as, you know, for innovation and creative ways, rather than this competitive, hard-edged, hawkish, everyone has to die if we don't win kind of mentality that we're in. There was also there was a headline recently too that according to our the Department of of, of Housing and Urban Development that it would cost somewhere around twenty billion dollars to end U.S. homelessness, and that is less money than the thirty three billion dollars in weapons that Biden and the Democrats just sent Ukraine. They could or, literally or be forty four billion dollars for Twitter, right? Yeah, like, Elon Musk could have single handedly ended homelessness, but he bought Twitter, so you know yeah. there you have. But I mean, the fact that like the Democrats and Joe Biden right now could be ending homelessness and instead they would rather fund a proxy war with Russia. Yeah. I mean, that shows you who the Democrats are. That shows you who the government is like. This government mm -hmm. is not interested in a multipolar world. This government is not interested in in having any kind of strong social social safety net at home. I you know, someone tweeted to me, you know, when I shared that story about that we could end homelessness for less than than the weapons we're sending Ukraine, someone said, "Well, no, like the government, you know, our capitalist government doesn't want to end homelessness because the they want the working class to see homeless people as they're going to their job, so there's always that looming threat like you have to stay in the rat race. You have to stay a cog in the wheel because if not, look what can happen to you." You know, so and, and I yeah. agree, like they, we literally push our people in this country that, to the point of desperation that they can't fight back because because it would they go homeless and they don't want to be. And so it's like they, they keep people homeless. So it's like a threat for people to, like, stay in the system, keep obeying. And, and I mean, when I saw that, I'm like, this is like it just shows you how corrupt the entire system is that, like, we have the money to end homelessness, mm -hmm. but we won't because that interferes with the capitalist system that they are put in charge of maintaining. Well, and, so, and, and, you, and you saw Saki when she said we have no more money for COVID. And then one week later, yeah. they gave a huge package to Ukraine. And then the second huge package of 33 yeah. billion. And, and, and I was meanwhile, they had we said they have no more money for COVID. For I don't usually agree with the Pope. I'll just say that. I, I was raised a Catholic. <laughs> and I don't normally agree with the Pope. But right. on this issue, some issues, and, and this week he came out and he said that, that, he flat out said, the Pope said that NATO aggression and expansion is what really provoked Russia to invade Ukraine. Um, and, you know, look, let's be honest, like, We've been saying this since the beginning, like NATO yes. and the United States absolutely provoked Russia yes. by going back on its promise uh, to to not expand NATO eastward up to, to Russia's border. 
And I, and the Democrats and our government continue to provoke Russia by sending billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine. What kind of message is that sending? Like, if Joe Biden and the Democrats wanted peace, Joe Biden would be on TV every day pushing for diplomacy, pushing for peace talks. Exactly. Instead, he's on TV pushing for more weapons, pushing for more war. And these weapons are just going to continue more war. And so uh, my question is, and this is kind of, I mean, a little lighthearted, um, but how long do you give it until Joe Biden and the Democrats accuse the Pope, uh, Tara, of being a Russian asset, uh, as <laughs> they know, do to me and you, uh, for being against funding any and all war? Because he's basically, the Pope has the same opinion we have. Stop sending weapons and start advocating for peace and diplomacy. Exactly. And you're exactly right. And like, NATO has expanded um, five times over 20 years. And so the Pope is right. And I don't often agree with the Pope either. And I come from a Catholic background as well, but not practicing as much. And I, and I kind of, it, so it was kind of stunning for me to see that, but, but at least someone said it. Now I wonder if his um, Twitter account will be, you know, labeled Russian affiliated state media. <laughs> Like they might have to invade the Vatican. <laughs> but do you remember? Their... <laughs> you remember? You remember Ryan? Um, when I was on your show back in 2020, I don't know if it was your show or another show, but I talked about Joe Biden's bigotry and xenophobia about Russia, and I warned. I said they're going to try to start a war against Russia. And remember, I've tweeted about yep. it enough. Like I kept telling, warning people, and you know, you think you're voting for this guy, you vote blue no matter who. You know that kind of mentality, but I. But you know what? Let's face it. I don't agree with any of the platforms of Donald Trump, but he didn't he didn't bring us to the brink of World War Three either. So and here we are. We're on the brink of World War Three. And people need to to really, you know, speak up and say, we want peace. We don't want um, manuf manufactured consent. We don't want a proxy war or a hot war with Russia. But that's what's so scary. But that's what's so scary about this war, and why I think you're absolutely right, absolutely right that we are on the brink of war. Because look at how fast Joe Biden and the Democrats were able to get basically every liberal in America within like two weeks of this of the narrative they manufactured had a yellow and blue flag in their Facebook and in and their Twitter pictures. I mean, it was so quick. I don't even think the CIA could manufacture consent this fast. Oh, so well, no, I think it's very much part of it. Because you don't Ryan, see I have, yeah, I have to disagree with you there. I think the CIA, I think it was part of an intelligence campaign um, using social media. I think they have, I think they're very, they infiltrate move, movements and they, they, the whole Ukrainian yellow blue flag is, is totally intelligence community type things. Um, you know, all the talking points were the same in all the media. They had they had a lot of former CIA and former State Department people all over MSNBC, all over CNN, talking about why we had to have be involved with this um, conflict in Ukraine, downplaying the 2014, what happened in 2014, which is we funded and helped with a coup, which Julian Assange exposed, Victoria Newland, And then, you know, here we are. And... Um, you know, we're that to me is what's so scary, though, is that you're not seeing liberals advocate for peace. You're seeing them yeah. like attack people like me and you who are yeah. saying, let's not 
put any more fuel on the fire. Let's not send more weapons. Let's advocate for peace. Let's advocate for a solution to this crisis. If you just talking, advocating for peace, literally I have liberals tell me like, you're insane. Like, why would you, you know, Putin doesn't want peace. And I'm like, well, do you want peace? Does does Biden want peace? You know, it's like, at what point did it become insane and reckless to advocate for peace? And And that's what really terrifies me though, is liberals are so obedient to the Democratic Party that literally, you're right, the CIA was probably all over this, but I just, and we know in the past, the CIA does do movements like this and they absolutely infiltrate leftist movements and socialist movements. But I just couldn't believe how quick it happened. I mean- First, Biden says he pulls out of Afghanistan. He's going to end a war. And now all of a sudden we're in a brand new proxy war. It's it, the 30 look, billion is Bernie. on top of. There's Bernie on this. Is on top and of the Bernie, 100 billion. Let's yeah, remember there, Bernie, was a, there was a $100 billion yeah. package. Now mm-hmm. there's a $33 billion package. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. people here are struggling. And also, let's not forget. We're all asked to be paying higher prices at the grocery store, higher mm-hmm. prices at the gas pump. We're all working class people who are living at the margins are supposed to sacrifice so the U.S. empire can maintain a proxy war and use the Ukraine, use Ukraine to fight its proxy war against Russia. And you said it earlier. I think this is a very important point. If the United States truly cared about the Ukrainian people, it would not be uh, adding fuel to the fire and, and pouring in. You don't create peace by sending $33 billion worth of weapons. You create peace by advocating for peace and pushing for peace and pushing for diplomacy. So that to me is the unfortunate thing is they are using the Ukrainian people. They're just collateral damage for for the US empire and for NATO to keep expanding eastward. And, And Putin told them, he told them throughout the past 10 years that that Ukraine needs to follow the Minsk agreement, that NATO cannot expand eastward, and NATO did the exact opposite. And so I I, I just... And I not only that, but we We're funded... in the state of like, you can't even bring this up or ask questions or push back mm-hmm. before I'm called a Russian puppet. I have no ties to Vladimir Putin. I don't even... I, I'm just a someone who wants dignity and justice for all people in the United States and in the world. But because I advocate for peace, I am now... Liberals accuse me because ever since Hillary lost, right? I mean, this is very coordinated. They've been blaming Russia. The oligarchs who control the Democratic Party have been blaming Russia for our country's problems since they lost the narrative in 2016 and since Trump won the White House. They needed to save face. Uh, Hillary didn't campaign in swing states. They didn't have a message for working people. They wanted to continue to maintain the status quo. Uh, obviously, I don't agree with Trump. I didn't vote for Trump. I would, I've never voted for a Republican. But he was able to peel off some voters who were tired of the Democrats' status quo platform and promising hope and change like Obama did and delivering nothing and, and just delivering hope and change for the billionaire class who doesn't need hope and change. So, I mean, this 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 strategy to blame Russia for everything or to accuse people in America who are advocating for Bernie or who are advocating for Medicare for all, that all of a sudden we're Russian bots because we don't support the democratic establishment. That is pure propaganda. It's insanity. And yet that is what educated liberals who watch Rachel Maddow, that is literally what they think. They think people like us who are advocating for poor and working class people, not just in America, worldwide, that we work for Russia. It's insanity to me that that is where the liberal elites and the Democratic Party are. They literally believe this stuff. They they do. And and they they fall for it every time hook, line and sinker. And here we have, you know, not only Russia being um, villainized, but now China as well. And that is not going to bode well. 
um, you know, economically, because China is a force in the in the world. And we need to accept that and work with them, not, you know, try doing all it's going to do is lead to more economic heartache in America if we push back against another nation again and isolate more. We're just becoming isolationists. And um, I don't think people are really seeing that. They're saying Russia is, but I don't really see it that way. I see the, like you said earlier, we're just desperately hanging on to power. The America's desperately hanging on to the empire and um, we're losing it. And you're right. Democrats lost the narrative in 2016. So they're, they've been able to effectively make an enemy that's convenient and they harp on it and they harp on it every time something goes awry, which they're doing again now. Um, they can't blame Roe v. Wade on Russia, but I'm sure they'll try somehow <laughs> in some They'll just blame it on Susan Sarandon or Jill Stein, you know. But so, and, and like, when does yeah. when do these smart people who love to brag and bloat that they're college educated, like, when are they going to wake up and see like that the oligarchs in Russia are not the ones that are like stopping us from having health care, like right. the, the and and also like the Russian oligarchs. Yeah, there's oligarchs in Ru- in Russia. They're not great, but there's more oligarchs and billionaires in America than any other country. And it's the American billionaires. You know, the thing that drives me crazy is like the Soviet Union. There were less billionaires. There were less oligarchs, and then the United States works to help elevate uh, Boris Yeltsin and and you know. The yeah, vast we majority of the people oligarchy. within the Soviet Union wanted the Soviet Union. And so America brings in their neoliberal ideology and they find someone who shares neoliberal ideology and Yeltsin. And look what happens after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That's where you see the, the increase in income inequality. That's where you start to see the oligarchs that start to grow their power. So for the people who are saying like, oh, my goodness, you know, look at how – bad putin or all these oligarchs are it's like yeah Mm -hmm. you should have given the communists let them continue to do what they were doing because what they were pushing for was not this this neoliberal ideology that privatized everything and let a few and how can these people see the oligarchy in russia and not see the biggest oligarchy in the world which is the united states that's right yeah. Like, how do they, how is it not clicking for them that, like, we have I, the I, highest I, levels of income inequality in the entire world? That, you know, exactly, exactly. How do they not and, see it? Like, it just, and, it blows my mind. And the fact that, like, the laws that are written that allow these corporations and billionaires to get insanely rich, they're not written by Putin and the oligarchs in Russia. They're written by U.S. lawmakers that are bought and paid for by the oligarchs in the United States. How and, are and they by the way, didn't, that? didn't you know Putin I, kicked out one of those American oligarchs, Bill Browder, who's who talks all kinds of you know nastiness about Putin because he was um, basically stealing from the coffers of Russia, and, and Putin kicked a bunch of those oligarchs out and said, "You're out. You're gone." And, um, you know, and because after the fall, we went in there with NGOs, we went in there to advise them on democracy and advise and and a bunch of Americans got enriched by um, by Russia at that time that was, you know, experiencing that. And we advised them on democracy and they they ended up with an oligarchy, which is exactly just like they tell us every election. You got to go vote for democracy in America. No, like democracy. It just when they whenever you hear U.S. politicians say democracy, it's really oligarchy. Like that's the word you need to substitute in because we don't have democracy in America. United States of oligarchy. oligarchy. The United States of oligarchy. We talked about this last show and that's where we are. And it's and it's only the disparity is only getting worse and those elites are getting the one like if you look at the disparity of wealth in the united states it's gotten down to point 
0.001% own 80% of the nation's wealth, that is unconscionable. That is unimaginable. That wasn't the reality even 10 years ago, even five years ago. And that's where we are right now. And they've been able to maintain this by, again, dividing us. Like, and that is why, like, as much as, like, I disagree with Republicans on every issue, uh, like, I am, and as much as I am a socialist, I am about building a a coalition of all people who want dignity and justice for all. Like, I don't care who you voted for in 2016. If you are going to vote a different way, if you want to vote third party, if you want to build a better country, I, I mean... Because I don't, to be honest, these comfortable liberals who the Democrats have been able to successfully propagandize, I don't see them ever breaking away from the Democratic Party because they have they they're the good guys. Why would they? They they watch CNN. They watch they watch MSNBC. They are fed a steady diet of Democrats are good. Republicans are bad. Everything is great as long as you just get rid of the Republicans. And what they don't see is that the Democrats took more corporate money than Republicans did in 2020, that the Democrats took more money from Wall Street than even Trump did in 2020 and the Republicans. So you've got two ruling class parties, you've got two corporate parties, but the Democrats think that they're the good guys. And it's so dangerous to me. And that, again, like we said earlier, is why I think they are. Chris Hedges is right. They are the more effective evil. Um, Mm -hmm. Why don't we see if anyone wants to buzz in here? Uh, We're getting near the end, but let's see if any of our guests want to chime in. Rob, is anyone in there? I don't at the moment see anyone on uh, and the speaker. Does anyone have a question for Tara or want to say something? Wants to add some insight. Yeah, you can join. Don't be shy. And we'll take you and your question right away. Come on. I I see some listeners. Yeah. So. So don't be shy. (laughs) Well, we wait for that. I have one one quick question. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the playbook on how we're we're as Americans um, the information war against Russia and how we're we're trying to paint the situation in Ukraine a certain way. What can we learn, like us as part of the anti-war movement, as part of you know communists and socialists pushing back against capitalism? Inevitably, I think the same playbook is going to be used against China. Um, I think that's the next big, yep. the big bad guy. The United States is going to try to, to you know, well, we need war with China to protect the sovereignty of Taiwan. What right. Solomon we, Islands. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What can we learn and what can we like use what's happening in Russia as a way to kind of prepare ourselves and, and better be able to push back against some of the, the ideology that we know is going to be coming in the near future? That's a good question. I mean, we're, we're just like in this propaganda kind of state propaganda state that's hard to break through but like you see the repeat you know it's fighting back with like having independent you know content like inn like i mentioned that network before like you have a lot of content creators that are talking about the anti-war movement and there's also anti-war.com by the way they have some great articles about some of the and they just did one i think natalie um, Baldwin just did one on the Solomon Islands, but um, and, and China and such. But what was stunning for me, and I don't know what you all think about this, was seeing some of the anti-war protests that were calling for a no-fly zone, not yep. understanding that's not peace. They were calling for people to shoot down Rus- Russian sh- soldiers in the air, and that that was actually in- would engage or ignite a hot war with Russia. 
And, you know, you had um, media pushing this very hard and using the words no fly zone. Like they use the word lethal aid. It's not lethal aid. That's not fucking lethal. That's not aid. Those are weapons. Those are weapons that kill people. They're not aid. And they're not helping anyone except the person that sold them is helping their bank account. That's it. And so, yeah, so you have, um, so what I think is the anti-war movement needs to get more solidified, more organized, and and recognize the rhetoric. Yes, conflicts and war are horrible, and you want to help people, but we should be talking about diplomacy if you're truly anti-war, not no-fly zone, not igniting a war. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I, I, that taught that I, if you're coming from any anti-war perspective, I know this is hard for us as because we grew up in America and we grew up with the, you know, the Star Spangled Banner and we were, you know, it's so funny how people can look at other countries and be like, oh, they propagandize their their population as little kids. Well, what mm-hmm. do you think we do here? You know, from a very young age, we're taught that we're the best, that, you know, yeah. home of the free, land of the brave. And really, we are this massive empire that that has created uh, massive wars throughout the world that continues to fund massive wars and conflict throughout the world. Um, we we are, again, the only nation that has ever dropped an at- atomic bomb on another nation. We have over 800 military bases throughout the world. I like to point out to people, does China or Russia have 800 military bases throughout the world? No. So part of coming from an anti-war perspective is realizing that we live in the empire. We are the empire. So Mm -hmm. when you see that, you can't automatically trust the narrative of the empire because the number one thing that the U.S. empire, the CIA, the, the, the military is trying to do is they need to get people on board for these wars that naturally people won't support. That's why they lied about the weapons of mass destruction. That's why, like yep. you just pointed out, they say things like, oh, we need a no-fly zone in Ukraine. It sounds so innocent, so innocuous. No, a no-fly zone is a U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. would shoot down a Russian plane and that will literally mm-hmm. bring us or could provoke World War Three. We don't want that. You know, so that is what you need to do is not trust the narrative that the empire is giving you. And you need to always push back. You know, look, I when this conflict started, I I I don't support, you know, I, well, I, I will never support the United States funding war and and sending weapons to a war zone. I also don't support necessarily Putin, you know, going into Ukraine. I don't think he's a great actor either. But with that said, I'm not going to automatically, I believe that he was provoked. I believe that NATO did continue to to expand. And, and there was 14,000, there was 14,000 Russian People nationals that, were, that died. 14,000 Russian over, nationals have been killed yeah. in the Donbass. That is a fact since 2014. Yeah. It is also a fact that, that the, the military in Ukraine has a strong uh, right-wing neo-Nazi component, uh, the mm-hmm. Ossoff Battalion, that yep. the corporate media was reporting on a lot three years ago. But as soon as this co- conflict started, all of a sudden, they don't call them Nazis anymore. They just call them far-right insurgents, right? Or, or, or far-right yeah, or nationalists. They call them nationalists. Yeah, they call them nationalists. They're no longer Nazis, yeah. excuse me. But so I would just say that, like, it's important to challenge narrative. It's You don't ever believe the empire. You challenge the empire's narratives. Don't go along with any kind of war. Like, when this, when this thing broke out, the first thing I said is I stand unequivocally with the working class in Ukraine, with the working class in Russia, and the working class throughout the world who mm-hmm. who deserves to live in peace but 
doesn't live in peace because we are ruled by an economic system and by a ruling elite who want to continue to divide us up uh, so they and exploit us so that they can uh, enrich themselves. And so as long as we have this capitalist imperialist economy that is dominated and controlled by the United States and our oligarchs here that controls the world economy, that is that we have to push back against that. And so, you know, that is why, like, I just I I will never after my awakening and 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 over the last four years, don't rush to believe the narrative that our government feeds you. Challenge it. Question it. When the, when when a government starts to set up a disinformation agency, a.k.a. a ministry <laughs> of truth, ask yourself, why are they doing this? Like, I, <laughs> right. Well, to to read information from all different sources and determine what them, you know, that's the thing here that the American, I trust as, as much as I know some, some people don't like this. I trust the American people far more than I trust the American government. I trust the people to determine what the truth is more than I, than I trust the CIA or a disinformation agency in the department of Homeland uh, security. Uh, mm-hmm. tell- what is and isn't disinformation? No. Let the people decide. That The moment you start to allow the government to control the information blatantly like that, that is a road to fascism, which we are on, which, which, we, which we already are. That is not going to get us back to democracy, which is where we need to go. So that, those are the kind of things. People need to dissent. We need to dissent. We need to ask questions. We need to stop buying the narratives that they're selling us and understand that the narratives that are sold to you by our politicians and by the media are narratives that prop up the status quo and continue a corrupt economy, which just enriches the oligarchs at all of our expense. And like you pointed out, the wealth gap in this country is getting worse and worse, and we're all basically fighting for scraps. And it's going to keep getting worse and worse. And so until we can unite and fight back against the ruling class, it's just going to keep getting worse for the rest of us. And so we've got to find some solidarity amongst each other. And I get it that there are racists, that there are white nationalists on the right. I don't support them. But if anyone wants to, again, grow and change and be different and, and, and fight for dignity and justice for our black and brown brothers and sisters and fight for women's rights and wants to do the right thing today and not vote for Trump and not vote for Republicans and not vote for Democrats. Like th- those are the kind of coalitions we need to build. We need to build multiracial working class coalitions of all kinds of people coming together. Now, me saying that I'm immediately going to be called a racist because I said just what I said. And that's <laughs> how the Democrats maintain their power. They call anyone a racist who wants to build a coalition of the working class because and then they'll turn around and not actually help black and brown people in this country. They literally just. And so that's when I realized that I'm like, fuck all these narratives of the Democrats getting (laughs) million people racist when they don't even help black and brown people in this country. Like, who are they to call us racist when they're not doing anything to improve the racial wealth gap, when they're not passing reparations, when they're not. Uh, you know, writing off student loan debt, which disproportionately affects black and brown people when they're, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like the Democrats, all they do is is weaponize identity politics, turn us against each other and, and call everyone else racist that doesn't want to vote Democrat. And I used to do that. I don't buy that shit anymore. I see Anya yep. asks a question in the chat. She says how to build the movement. And I think that's kind of the million dollar question. Um, and, and similar to like the point of how are we going to use the information we're seeing in the with what's going on in, in Ukraine to stop the next instigation with China. 
you know, there will be more censorship. There will be continued uh, deplatforming of people, uh, finding ways to demonetize them. So how can we, like, how can we learn? What are we going to set up? How are we going to build the communities? How are we going to have not just a bunch of fractured, well, in this city, we have a few people here. In this city, a few people here. How do we really galvanize to, to be an actual movement? And unfortunately, I think there's a large group of people that they're waiting to galvanize behind someone. And in 2016, it seemed like Bernie Sanders was going to be that someone to to come around, and that was going to be the the person that brought everyone from all these large swaths uh, together to fight a unified battle. And I think mm-hmm. the, the the problem we're having is finding a way to kind of solidify. So we're not having, well, this is what uh, PSL is doing, which is different from what the Green Party is doing, which is different from what CPUSA is doing, which is different. Mm-hmm. You have all these movements that are kind of disjointed. And although they agree a lot on you know 90%, I would say probably 90% agreeing on these are the platforms we need to adopt. This is a way we need to get power back. There's just been something missing that's, that's and I don't know, I, I would say COVID has, has not helped not being able to to have certain people meeting up in person and having these organizations, mm-hmm. um, having to do things over Zoom can be convenient in some ways. But like, I, I really do. I don't have a, a great answer for this as opposed to just kind of throwing it out there of like, I think there's a lot of people that have good intentions who have energy and they just don't know exactly how best to use that energy. And when you have so little energy because you're working all the time and you're tired and you're hungry and you don't have a lot of money to spend, you don't want to just back anything. You want to make sure what you're backing has a chance to win, has numbers behind it. And until we kind of see something or I'm leaning towards people are waiting for someone to step up and say, I'm going to challenge both the Democrats and the Republicans. And for a while, it seemed like Bernie was going to be the guy. And then he decided he wanted to run as a Democrat. And then he decided he wanted to play patty cakes with his good friend, Joe Biden. And then he Mm -hmm. wanted to do all these other things, not to mention the fact that I don't think Bernie Sanders has his foreign policy is anti-imperialist enough. I don't think that he wants to dismantle capitalism. I think he was kind of the last hope of salvaging what we have and trying to change the system from within mm-hmm. versus completely tearing the system down and from the ashes building something that is actually equitable. And so I, I think that we're waiting on someone, whether it's a, you know, a Malcolm X, Martin Luther King kind of person to really rally the people behind, or whether it might be someone who is a politician that, that has some name recognition and says, look, I'm going to say I'm running as an independent. I'm running as a green because these two parties keep marching us towards war, keep marching us towards climate catastrophe, keep marching mm-hmm. us towards poverty and austerity measures that that keep squeezing the middle class out. So that's what I think is holding um, holding us back from having an actual like cohesive unit that is a movement. I think you're right. I think solidarity around um, a movement has been hard, especially when it's infiltrated. It's, um, you know, when they try to demonetize and deplatform people, like you said. But I think the way to get to that point and to get that person um, or people that you want is to stay on these platforms, diversify, stay on Rockfin, support Rumble. YouTube is is censoring, right? Um, move away from the platforms that are censoring and they're part of the big tech that are part of Zuckerberg and, you know, all the rest of the billionaires class and try to try to, you know, support smaller platforms. Maybe they're smaller now, but they'll become bigger. And I know diversifying can be hard, 
but there's a solidarity to that too, as long as we're sharing until we get that person or people, but I don't think there's going to be a hero. It's like what Ryan titled the show, right? He said, we've got to save ourselves. We've got to be that person. We've got to take that action, no matter how tired. And believe me, I'm tired. I, you know, I work, I don't have enough money to, to get by. Um, I'm blocked in a lot of ways because I I have a political machine coming at me and I'm not going to bore everyone with the ways that I'm blocked, but it's making it hard for me to even live day to day, like in a normal world, um, because I went up against a machine and that's the reality. Um, but we're all, we're all up against a machine now collectively. There's solidarity in that. So let's all push together. And, um, I think that that's, you know, what Ryan said was very, very poignant. We've got to save ourselves. There's not going to be a hero that's going to come from outside. We have to be on this hero's journey ourselves. Yeah, I think and I think for me, it's like we have to all put our individual egos aside and do what's right uh, and just for the collective. Right. For for all of us. And for me, like Bernie did a lot of things right. The one thing he did wrong, his, his fatal mistake his his big flaw was trying to organize a movement that was fighting for dignity and justice for all people inside of a party that is owned and operated uh, for the ruling class and for Wall Street. Like the Democratic Party is never going to fight for dignity and justice for all people <laughs> because no. the Democratic Party exists for the same reason the Republican Party exists, and that is to protect and serve the interests of of big business and the ruling class and the military industrial complex. So anyone, if and I think, you know who broke the solidarity of the Bernie Sanders movement? It wasn't Bernie. It was the Democratic Party. It was the DNC. And so that's where I get frustrated is I see a lot of progressives who have bigger platforms than I do, much bigger, that still hold on to the hope that you can somehow reform the Democratic Party from within. And they are going to lead the sheep yeah. to the slaughter once again. I can already yep. see it. There, yep. There's going to be a, a progressive that rises who's going to take on, you know, that's going to challenge the, the DNC corporate-backed candidate, whether it's Biden or if he doesn't run, you know, Kamala or Buttigieg. But the DNC has showed us they will always, and, the, and along with their partners and the corporate media on MSNBC and CNN, and and all the mainstream uh, news publications, the New York Times, et cetera, they will always, always favor the the corporate backed candidate that will that will protect the status quo and that will protect the interests of the ruling class. So yeah, look I would at, tell look the working Nina class, Turner. Like, look at Nina Turner, yeah. if, if the working class wants liberation, if we really want dignity and justice for all people, that's never coming inside the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. We again, that's why my previous little rant 20 minutes ago was about trying to organize and get people out of this red blue thinking. Again, even though I'm a socialist, even though I believe in getting rid of our capitalist system, I also believe that that's never possible unless we can inform and wake up all of our brothers and sisters who are struggling under the system. And that means waking up people who have voted for Republicans or Democrats in the past. I believe that's the only kind of coalition that we can build. And I believe that we can do that locally. I believe that there's organizations who are already doing that. Uh, Socialist Alternative is probably my favorite uh, smaller socialist party. They've been able to uh, win a local seat in Seattle. I talk about them all the time. I've had Shama Savant on the show. But people don't think that change happens. Well, Shama Savant 
winning a city council seat, got a $15 wage in 2014. We can't even get a $15 wage now in 2022 <laughs> nationally. Uh, she <laughs> yeah. got Amazon to pay a wealth tax to fund uh, permanent supportive housing and to, and to fund social housing in Seattle. I mean, there's ways. Get involved with Socialist Alternative. Get involved with the Green Party. Get involved with PSL. Do we need to bring all these parties together? Absolutely. Um, do we need a, an independent candidate who's going to run independently? Absolutely. But I think if we all keep fighting for the right things that, you know, we can we can spearhead uh, maybe a commission to advocate, to bring all these people together and all these groups together so we can run under one ticket. Um, you saw the Green Party actually do that in 2020, where the Socialist Party and the Green Party ran a united ticket. Um, you know, so there are solutions, but I think. Again, what's preventing us from getting there quicker is you've got a lot of people that supported Bernie like I did who still think and hold on to the myth that you're going to reform the Democrats. So that, to me, is the biggest dividing block right now, the biggest thing preventing us. And in the meantime, though, like there's great mutual aid happening. There's people who are also not even like, look, electoral politics is one way to, you know, to permanently change the system. But there's a lot of people, rightfully so. Um, a lot of communists and, and revolutionaries uh, who are focused on mutual aid and, bu and building dual power because they don't believe that's any change will ever come electorally, right. that you can never vote away this system. And I right. would agree with them. Um, I would agree that the only useful tool of electoral politics is to run a candidate that is independent, that can literally wake people up to the corruption of the system so we can get them out of the system and, and, and to start to build the kind of revolutionary organization and, and party that it would take to ever get to a better system. But again, these things are going to take time. I think the movement, although it looks fractured, I think it's already in, happening. I just think that we're seeing this great divide where there are a lot of people who think the Democrats are going to reform themselves or that we can reform them when they've been for 200 years now since their inception. The Democrats have been, since their inception, they've been, regardless of the rhetoric they use and their platitudes, they've been a, what you would call a right-wing capitalist and imperialist party that supports the duopoly and supports our oligarchy and works in tandem with the Republicans. They just use different rhetoric than the Republicans to confuse the masses. But we are not confused. And so we have to, as painful as it is, as Anastara said, you know, we have to keep educating, keep fighting. And know that like change is coming. It's not coming as fast as we want it. But again, it, it, we can't count on anyone else to save us. We cannot. There isn't going to be. I don't think there'll be one single savior. I think that, that the movements and process. I think you could have someone speak up for, for the movement. But what, what AOC and Bernie have taught me is that if you think that you can just worship a politician and expect them to make all the change. That will never happen. Even if another AOC comes along outside of the Democratic Party or a Bernie, we have to always hold that person accountable. They have to be accountable to the movement and accountable to the kind of policies we're fighting for that will deliver dignity and justice to all people and that will help marginalized communities and will protect women's rights and will help black and brown people and working class people and be unequivocal about that fight. And because if you don't hold that person accountable or the movement accountable, look what happens. And we've seen that not just the squad. I mean, if you look at the labor movement in this country, it's done a lot of good things. 
every the reason it's done hasn't delivered more is because it gets co-opted and you see union bosses who would rather instead of delivering higher wages for the workers and better benefits they cozy up with with the corporate executives themselves you know so that's what we have to fight against the co-opting and we have to continue to build movements that are clear about what we stand for and for me that's about fighting for dignity and justice for all people, especially poor and working class and marginalized people who've never had dignity and justice and true liberation in this country. And, you know, I, I think that it's going to be an uphill battle. We have to be clear on that, but I think that it can happen and it is going to happen if we all have solidarity that Tara was talking about. I want to make sure, Johnny, uh, you're in the caller queue, so yeah. I want you to be able to ask a question. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, man, I'll tell you, you know, I was uh, over at the Pangburn uh, listening to those t- guys talk over there. And I, gosh, you guys are golden. You know, guys are golden. I got to I gotta go back, rewind, and, and hear the beginning of this. But, yeah, I'm with Ryan. But only I, I, I take a different approach. When you talked about the system, Ryan, I think that is our problem yep. at root. The system, no, no, but in the sense that, Nobody understands the system, and there's actually a word for it. There's history behind it. And not only that, there's the antidote for that, and there's history behind that. So if you ask somebody, you ask somebody out of 10 people, you ask them, what do you think neoliberalism is? And I I would venture to guess that 8 out of 10 people would not be able to define the word and the ideology of neoliberalism, which we've been living under for over 40 years now. And that is the big problem. And that is the main problem. Because, I mean, I talk to people all the time. And, I, you know, I ask them, and they say, Yeah, I got a problem with this, there's a problem with that. But they, they can't pinpoint it, you know, they can't. Mm. And because they can't pinpoint it, they also can't uh, talk about the uh, the alternative. And the alternative is what uh, John Maynard Keynes had from 1945 to 19, the, the late 70s, what was embedded capitalism. So when you talk about capitalism, socialism or communism, right, most people, I mean, the, 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 the neoliberals have been so successful, so successful in propagandizing the American public into giving the, the socialism a dirty word that it's to the point yep. now where the socialists and the communists, you know, which I think are, are, are reasonable. Uh, argument for a form of government don't have a get don't don't have a chance right so i think that our best bet is to first educate people on what neoliberalism actually is and once they understand that then they can start putting the pieces together and understand yeah this is why there's income inequality yeah this is why they took away the welfare system you know uh, food stamps and yeah this is why corporations are starting to monopolize again and yeah this is why the banks got away with you know robbery you know yeah this is why you know so on and so forth right this is why they shipped all your jobs overseas exactly nafta right you know uh, and the difference between neoliberalism classical liberalism and what John Maynard Keynes had, what we call the golden age of capitalism, when people were, you know, going 40 hours a week, working 40 hours a week, affording, you know, all this, right? It It was a good time to be a capitalist because we had tamed the market, right? We had regulations in the market. So 
I think that the, uh, the, the my question, I would, I would ask yeah. you this, Johnny, because I, I was where you were a few years ago. I agree. Right. Ne neoliberalism is a problem. I mean, privatizing our everything and, and right. basically to the point of where people, basic human rights are, have been commodified to the extent of, you know, next they're saying the big wars are going to be over just clean water. You know, I mean, they, right. so the American people are exploited, not just at their current job and, and right. having their labor exploited by the CEO and the company they're working for and being underpaid for, for their, for their labor. Uh, right. But, you know, we get exploited by the telephone company, by the water company, by our healthcare companies. I mean, when you look at the Europe has more, a lot more social services, but in America, every aspect of our life has been commodified and we've given the corporations that power. But I would, I would ask you this. Do you think that capital, because I think that capitalism, while you're arguing about the golden age of capitalism, that it certainly worked for my parents' generation. Uh, I like to be clear, though, capitalism has never worked for everyone. I believe at its core, it is a system of exploitation where you, in order to have a ruling class, you have a poor and a working class that, that you exploit. So the ruling class can have make as much money as they do. But my thing for you is, well, maybe capitalism worked a lot better 30, 40 years ago for a lot more people. It's never worked for everyone, but was capitalism always going to go this way? Is a system that is built on exploiting natural resources and exploiting the labor of the poor and working class, isn't it always going to end up with wealth consolidation at the top? Isn't it always going to end up with having to create more wars so you can create more profits? You know, isn't it always going to end up where you're always exploiting the masses to enrich the few oligarchs who control our capitalist system? You know, though, I, I know those are hard questions and you're absolutely right. Socialism has demonized. The capitalists yeah. have waged a campaign against it for a century now. That's why everyone's so scared of it. But at its core, I would even argue socialism isn't a government. It is a economic system where the workers own the means of production, um, right. not, the, not the capitalist class. Um, but well, I just I want to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that, sure. you know, do you think capitalism was always going to get us to where we are now, where we're fighting over fewer and fewer resources and fewer and fewer opportunities? And is this golden age that people talk about, is it just a myth? Because I think it was always going to end up this way. Do you get my, my question? I do get your question. And you have uh, a very good argument. Because at the end of the day, uh, I believe you're exactly right. But we can learn from history. Look, mm. there was a time, as you mentioned, and as, as we both know, that there, during the time of Keynesian economics, uh, we did have an age, a time where, you know, we were we were prospering. Uh, what happened? What changed? What changed was uh, the the classical liberals, you know, uh, uh, Friedrich von Hayek and uh, and Ludwig Mitt. Um, Mises uh, looked at it and said, Dar darn, you know, uh, Nader is starting to get a lot of power here. I mean, for God's sakes, he had a Republican president pass the EPA, you know, the Powell memo, you know. So uh, always, always capitalism, capitalism will fight, the capital will fight back. So on that yep. point, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But here's the thing. Uh, we, Maynard, John Maynard Cain found a way to fight back and we did end up with the golden age of capitalism. So here's the point. The point is, is that I don't think that we can go from neoliberalism to socialism. And I think a more pragmatic way to go is from go from neoliberalism to embedded liberalism and from there go to, to socialism. And the reason for this is because something very important changed in 1972, which I think gives us the edge. And what changed was that we went off the gold standard and we went on a free-floating, non-convertible fiat currency. 
and uh, and and I think now more and more people are starting to edu- get educated about the true nature and the true the happenings of macroeconomics through uh, the uh, work of the academics of UMKC over 20 years ago uh, with their heterodox economic uh, uh, perspective called modern monetary theory. Now, here's the thing. If we educate, first of all, number one, there is such a th- there that we are currently living under uh, neoliberal policies. Number two, we can go to embedded liberalism. Number three, once we go there, now with understanding modern monetary theory, we could actually get back to the golden age of capitalism. And once we get there, once we get there, then we we move on to uh, a push towards socialism, right? But to go from capitalism to socialism, it's not happening. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the challenge. We're dealing with a population that has been totally brainwashed, totally propagandized, that they, they don't even know what neoliberalism is. Number two. And I would say uh, they don't even know what socialism is. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, not even that. So we, we, we've got a population that really doesn't study, that really don't you know, put their nose. So what can we do? The only thing I think the best way to go about it is to educate people, number one, on neoliberalism and number two, on the alternative. Because you can't – and this is what frustrates me the most, Ryan. Man, every day I, I, I listen to podcasts and I'm on the radio. I'm a truck driver, right? And uh, every day I hear people, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's what – and this is what they're doing today. But hardly anybody's talking about what you are talking about right now. I mean, gosh, I can't tell you what a fresh – what a great thing it is to hear you guys talk. I mean, I'm telling you, I've been looking for weeks. I've been dying. I got my own podcast, uh, what do you call podcast, to try mm. to talk about this sort of thing about solutions, right? Yeah. And you guys are the only people, only people that are even coming close. They're saying, okay, here's what we got to deal with. So here's my idea, and it's radical as hell. But I've got some really sound arguments that backs it up. Number one. We cannot we, – we recognize that protests in the streets are really are not effective in the sense that you have provocateurs, you got the chance of going to jail, and it really isn't effective. Number two, you have a population that really don't have the time to protest or, or the time to be active. They're, you know, as Alan Greenspan put it, the great moderation. Get it to where they're working their asses off and living in such precarity that they're, they don't have the time or the effort or the will to fight back. And right. You know, and that's where we right. are today. Right. So we don't have the time. We don't uh, other things. Uh, we don't we don't know where power is. You know, Jake Uger years ago in the Wolf Pack was was trying to push an amendment to the Constitution to get our, our country back to get that free and fair elections. Right. And he had all these signatures. Right. And I just imagine in my mind how it happened. I think he got like five states to petition the federal government for a constitutional convention to get an amendment to the Constitution to get money out of politics. Right. Yep. But Which would help. Problem. Well, his problem, though, was that it actually wasn't getting money out of politics. We should be getting money in politics. In the sense that with free and fair elections, what we have is a situation where we, if we understand the monetary, modern monetary theory, there's nothing that the federal government cannot afford. The problem is, is that our representatives are enslaved to what you were talking about, to the oligarchs and the corporations that pay for their campaigns and keep them in office. So there's no way they're going to change it, right? There's no way. Why would they, right? Lawrence yep. Lesser makes this point very well in his TED Talk about Lesterland, right? So I could I just imagined, you know, how it happened 
So Jenkins up there, and he's got about five people behind him. They're all lawyers, you know, and he's got this, he wheels out this scroll, and he says, okay, here it is. Here are the petitions. I've got millions of signatures here, and I've got the Constitution right here, right here. Now, damn it, you know, give me my Constitutional Convention. And the judges, the Supreme Court, or whoever it was, the court that he went to, uh, the Cooley Law School talks about this, right, uh, the, the Article 5 Convention. He looked at Uger, looked over his shoulder, and said, you and what army, right? So the Constitution is just a piece of paper that means nothing to them, right? So where do you get the real true power? Now, I'm about to say something, guys, that's going to really, really kind of, I mean, really radical. And I think, but I think we have to be radical at this point. I agree. Electoral politics will not do it. Forget it. And, and, and a third party politics, all as much as we try, it, the system we are we know is rigged against us. I mean, it's got to be outrageous, you know, for us to get a third party candidate to go through the system that is rigged against us. So the only thing we got left is power. Right. And what kind of power? Guys, I'm a truck driver. All right. And I I talk to these guys and I tell people if there's ever a representation of the American working class, it's in the truck driver. I'm telling you guys, if you don't know this, it's, it's freaking blows you away. Old people, young people, black people, white people, Mexicans, Cubans, Irishmen, Ukrainians, I mean, Asians, I mean, all kinds of people are driving trucks out here every day. And if you ask a truck driver, hey, man, what do you think about power? Shit, I'd stop my truck. It's over for them, man. I got power and we know we have power. Yeah. Right. Well, I, truck, go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I would just say, um, uh, cause we are running near time yeah. and we have another caller. First things. Yes. We need to be radical. You're absolutely right about that. Second thing I would say is, um, getting in the streets doesn't work. You argued, I would argue that some of the only times the politicians in Washington listened to the people were during uh, moments of mass disobedience. You saw it in the civil rights movement. It might not look pretty to some people, but we I would argue we do need to protest. Um, we just need to have a common goal that we're protesting for, which for me would be to to see a, a completely new economic bill of rights that would deliver dignity and justice to all people and, and would give people living wages and health care and and housing and, and and the kind of basic rights that I think everyone should have. But the last thing I will say that I agree with you on is that we saw, I mean, they were villainized to death, but we saw what the truckers were able to do when they protested in Canada. I maybe disagreed with their mission, but were they effective? I would say they were. They got the entire country to pay attention to them. So, you know, if the truckers got together and wanted to support policy that would give working class and, and, and poor people more power in this country, and would hold the ruling class accountable, I would be all for, for disobedience like that. And what's interesting is you argued that we don't need to see protests. That is a form of protest if you guys would would, would protest and, and we could form some kind of coalition with that. So, um, you know, I, I think that you're on the right track and yeah. um, call back again. And Right. And uh, I, I wanted to conclude with just one real quick, Ryan. Okay, real quick. Okay, but, I wanted to conclude with the three things that all – all political spectrums from left to the right and everybody in, in between will agree. Just three things. And I'll conclude with this. All right. Number one, we can agree that we no longer are a government of by and for the people. Number two, that we 100%. can agree that we at least deserve a vote on Medicare for all. We deserve that. hundred percent. hundred percent. And number three, the most powerful weapon those that oppose us use against the people is the manipulation of information. And thank you for yep. the time. Uh, I'll, uh, thank you for the time.
Thank, Johnny, you made this episode better. Thank you for calling in, and and I and I'm gonna go look for your show. Um, do we want to get to Lance, and then uh, ta- I don't want to keep Tar anymore. So then we should start to wrap up. Yeah, I was gonna say something, you know, uh, about what you know, Terry Reed, you have there, and about the, the SCOTUS thing and Democrats and all that. So I maybe I'll stick with that. Please. Please, no, no, yeah. say whatever, you can say whatever you want. This is an open platform. Speak your mind and your heart and whatever your brain's telling you to say is what you should say. I'll do both briefly. Start with what we're talking about and then go back to the other. As far as third parties, I've been saying this to a different call-ins as far as the power of third parties and how hard it is. Absolutely true, but, okay, so the Federalists kind of morphed into the Whigs. I'd say it was a pretty pretty closely resemblance in terms of the Venn diagram. Yep. But the Whigs, but the Whigs ter- were not the Republicans. Very, very the abolitionists. They were uh, very, very different. And they formed, and within a decade or less, they had a president. Now, they would have been a third party, except the Whigs just faded out. There would have been the, Jeff- uh, the uh, yeah, Jeffersonian Democrat. Now, the Jeffersonian Democratic-Republican Party, again, very, very different than the Jacksonian, who's like a, a early Trump. But, you know, it was a populist, you know. The, 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 the right. unwashed masses were welcomed. And the Jeffersonian party for all liberalism was very, very elite. The the Venn diagrams in those two situations did not overlap. So, but Hmm. the, so the new, what we call, you know, the Jacksonian, the modern Democratic party would have been the third party, except they were such a powerful potential third party that the Jeffersonian Democrats say we can't compete. Same with the Whigs. The Republicans overwhelmed it. So we have two of the most powerful third parties in history. We think of them, oh, well, it's two party system. No. They would have been third parties. So the current parties we have would are would be third party. <laughs> okay. And let's go back to the 19th century and the farmer labor party and the pop for early popular. Let's go to the bull moose or we want to say the Republican Party progressives after the, you know, during the Gilded Age. Let's talk about W.D.B. Dubois. 1912 ran for president from jail, got 6%, got a million votes as a communist or socialist. Let's yep. talk about the third parties that existed during the uh, socialist movements. The communists, they had, what was it, Milwaukee? They had like 50 or 60 socialists, not democratic, so, you know, like independent caucusing with socialist parties. Yep. Not and these watered-down ones that are really just, you know, working with the neoliberals yeah. and the Democratic Party. Yeah, so this idea yeah. that, oh, you know, third parties, I don't know. There's a whole history of third parties that have been incredibly successful. How about two terms, just two cycles, where the Democrats can't say we're better off losing, we can raise more money, if all of a sudden there's a 10% solid green, whatever, third party that consistently yep. gets 10 or 12%. And the Republicans control everything for a couple of presidential cycles. Guess what? The money ain't going to come in anymore because the Republicans have all the control. And all of a sudden, that 10% party is going to look awfully palatable to the Democrats. Okay, so this idea that third parties can't change anything. I couldn't believe Glenn Greenwald saying it. It's just ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. Well, and American, I would agree American- with you on this point. I think that so many people get caught up in, in winning and losing. Uh, You know, they can't win. win. But I would say this. I I always push back and I say, look, this whole idea of winning and losing. First of all, when uh, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party wins an election, the the people are losing. Right. The people aren't winning these elections anyways. Like literally, like if either in, in the last cycle, there was 14 billion dollars that were spent in the last cycle. Uh, combined by Democrats and Republicans, $14 billion they raised and spent. The majority of that, corporate money, big money, money by people that are trying to influence our political system that we know is responsible for all the corruption that we see in our in our economy. Now, the 
the the Democrats are the ones who actually raised and spent more. They spent seven billion. The Republicans spent around five billion. And yep. I just like to tell people, if you think that a party that is taking over billions of dollars is ever going to re represent you, you are sorely, sorely misinformed and need to reconsider. So this idea of winning and losing, we're losing the elections anyways. The, the, the working class, the middle class, when a Democrat or Republican win in Congress or win the White House, we lose anyways. So this idea, what I like to tell people, and if you look at Europe, actually, the, 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 there's third and fourth and fifth parties. You know, they, they have more what I would call uh, multi-party democracy. And oftentimes it's the labor parties, it's the socialist parties who are committed to fighting for poor and working class people that are committed to fighting for health care, fighting to raise wages. Those parties well, they might not have the majority uh, in parliament. They're the ones that push the two, you know, capitalist and imperialist parties on legislation. So like, yeah. even if we could just get a small, if we could just get a few of them in Congress, or we could just get, a, if we could, like you said, get five or 10%, that's driving yeah, yeah, yeah. conversation. That's driving policy conversation. That's showing yeah. these two elite ruling class parties that the people are disenfranchised. And that yeah. will start to make them see that you cannot take our votes for granted that people and, and that's why i stopped voting democrat and 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 i didn't vote for joe biden for president i voted for for howie hawkins the green party candidate and that's why in 2024 and, and in 2022 i'll vote for other third party candidates um and i think that more people do that you're showing dis that you're telling their two ruling class parties that, that you do not support what they're doing in washington you do not support the warmongering you do not support the divide and conquer you do not support them selling out the working class shipping our jobs overseas and i think if we can do that in mass I agree with you. I think it can make a difference. Maybe not instantaneously, but you got to get out of this idea of like, oh, well, yeah, maybe you're not going to win the election in 2024, but we're not winning the election anyways. The oligarchs are winning the election and the giant corporations are winning our elections because they own both parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and to, to piggyback on a couple of points, quick. So talking about Europe and when this Medicare for all, Medicare for all thing, of course, no brainer. Get, take, make, get a vote. Vote, you know, vote, get the vote going. Right. But. Here's what I wanted, was waiting for like Chomsky, who I, you know, I had some disagreements with, and Richard Wolf. And I thought, I wonder what he's going to say. And you know what he said? Right on the money, he said, look, we put all everything on AOC. Like she's the rock star going to save us from everything like the, the second coming. And he said in Europe, he didn't say it that way, but he's like, in Europe, you don't have that. You've got six, five or six parties. Now, I've been making this point. There's probably rock star AOC types, you know, from the right and the left over in Europe. But. If your coalition has that, like you're exactly what you're talking about, if you're part of that coalition on the far right or the far left, which you have 18 percent on the far right or 18 percent, whatever, on the far left, and somehow things shift that way, all of a sudden you're going to be held to account by your own party in a way that you're not here because everybody from left to center to all the way left to March to social and Bernie and Biden and oh, vote blue. It's all put into one pot because that's all we right. have. But if you had yep. through two or three parties, you know what? I don't want a corrupt center-left party. And there's corruption in Europe. It's not a utopia. But people are held to account within. If you're a far-right guy, you're not going to play footsie with the open borders. You're going to have to be strong anti-immigrant or whatever the case may be. And you're going to be held to account by your own party because you're not putting all your, you know, bags in one asket, as they say, you know. And that's the thing yep. about Europe that Richard Wolf so poignantly put out is that AOC wouldn't get by with that because she'd be just one person of a whole bunch of parties and she wouldn't have that sway or not sway or not to easily use it, you know.
Um, yeah, and I would argue that, that we're not even seeing uh, AOC have any sway over the Democratic Party. Yeah. They basically, yeah. she just, they use her and to say, like, look, our party is left and our party does care about people right, right, when right. it doesn't. I mean, it, it's yeah. performative. Yeah. You know, that's why exactly. I think what I find so fascinating is, like, the conservatives in this country who are so scared about all this wokeness, I'm like, dude, you don't got to be scared. Nobody who votes Democrat or who's in the Democratic Party is 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 awake. Like, this is all performative. This wokeness they talk about, it's performative wokeness. It's virtue signaling. It's saying things, it's it's platitudes to kind of yeah. sound like, okay, you know, you're 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 for you know, a, a diverse country. But the truth is on policy, Democrats are not. They're they're for the same, mostly 95% of Democrats and Republicans in Congress agree on the same policy. It's policy that benefits one people. It's the, it's the ruling class, it's the giant corporations. And so we're not even seeing AOC get to even be a disruptor. And I think if you did, like you're arguing, if you had uh, someone from another party, you could disrupt more, you could, you could have more you could, the people would have more representation. And the last thing I would add is I find it interesting that the establishments and the Republicans and Democrats constantly paint like the, the far right and left as extremist. And I would argue that some of the biggest extremists in our society are the mm. ones in the center, especially at, at the center of the establishments in these parties, because they're the ones who always lead us to war. They're the ones who every bailout, it's to Wall Street, not to Main Street. You know, when they're shipping jobs overseas, NAFTA agreements like that, they always find bipartisan consensus in the center of the American empire. And that is the center of the establishment and Democrats and Republicans. And that's never legislation that helps everyday people. And so I just find it very interesting how any kind of uh, any kind of thing that rocks the boat in Washington, whether it's from the far right or far left, it's all you hear people on MSNBC, even on Fox News and on CNN. They always denounce it because they want to continue this this system that benefits them, that's rigged against the everyday person. And and I my dream is that we could find a coalition of people that could all come together and support a kind of society society where dignity and justice is, is available to everyone. Now I know that is probably a dream in this country because you know there are people on the right and left who use racism and weaponize it to to keep us divided. And and I, and that's sad. Um, but uh, I really appreciate your call. Uh, Tara, I want to get you in here. What do you think? Closing thoughts for, for tonight's episode. Could I segue it back into why you have, you know, you have Tara Reid there just very yes. briefly about the Please. whole racism. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So just to get your response to the left, whether it's the Women's March, urban black women or any black women, they were not particularly welcomed and the way that the grift and all the stuff with Black Lives Matter and the grift on that, but also whether it's abortion rights, whether it's $15 minimum wage, elite women, white women of any party are going to get abortions whenever they want, as long as they want. They are just, they are, and this is why the racism and the Democratic Party is real. It's not just virtue signaling. It's a nymphy problem. Come to the backyard for the rally, which for the, for the, for the candidate, but get the hell, we don't want to really have you in the front yard, you know, when we have the meetings of the Democratic parties. Okay. All it's, it's so racist and it's so sexist and it's, it's in some ways it's worse. Than in the Republican Party, because the Republican Party does not claim to say we're going to look out for people of color. We're going to look out for these people and then screw them worse. So they're screwing them just as bad, but they're making all the promises. So the racism and misogyny and the condescension among the Democrats in the Democratic Party and NARAL and Planned Parenthood and all these groups, they are they are they are 
they're just so insidiously, hypocritically slimy compared to even people on the left, on the right. Because if you're MTG or if you're Paul Gosar and you believe this garbage, well, you know what? At least you're an honest idiot. But these people know exactly what they're doing. Anyway, I think Tara Reid gets my point. I'd love to get her thoughts on that. Well, you know, I, I think the hypocrisy is something that I talked about quite a lot. Um, you know, from the Democratic Party, um, I've always called it the wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, and that's my experience with it. I worked with Democrats. I was a Democrat for most of my adult life. And I was part of the problem is how I see it. And I wrote about that in my book, Left Out When the Truth Doesn't Fit In. Um, I wrote about how now I feel like an obligation to speak out about the hypocrisy, about what Joe Biden did to me personally, but not just me. It's other survivors coming forward. Look what happened to the Cuomo survivors when they tried to come forward about Andrew Cuomo and all his sexual misconduct and what he did, not to mention covering up the nursing homes deaths that happened and um, the corruption that was in systemic. Well, Cuomo is one of the elites, just like Biden, and they were friends, and they even met each other um, about his problem in the fall, right before finally Biden distanced himself from Cuomo when it was obvious he was going to be let go, right, by the Democratic Party. But you heard, um, and I don't know how many of your listeners heard this, but um, they did an article about it, about Time's Up and the corruption, and they talked about how... um, you know, the Cuomo aides had messaged back and forth using my case saying, look at Biden with Tara Reid. We can now victim shame on the record. Now, these are Democratic staffers. So this is how they think. They don't care about the issue. They care about winning and they will win at all costs, it, even right. if it means throwing the whole um, issue under the bus. And so my I'm just sort of a microcosm, an example of the macro, which is how they are with most issues. They're using the voter electric to get what they want and to enrich themselves. Dianne Feinstein should be stepping down. They're trying to prop her up to run again. And they're even admitting that she has memory problems and she's not functioning properly. She has made millions of dollars and has done nothing for systemic change. And yet again, these Democrats are mummifying in their office, in their, in their seats. Um, You know, these offices were not meant to be for life. They're not the Supreme Court. They're the Congress. And yet you have people like Biden, Pelosi, Feinstein, and others um, hatch on the Republican side that have been there for decades and they need to get out. And we and need to vote. And they're the Republican leadership too. And it's, 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 so, yeah. it's so horrible, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, we so, talked about this you. and we talked about this earlier in the show where the Democrats have, they, they, they use the pain and they weaponize the pain and plight of marginalized people to fundraise and to get power. But then once they're in power, they don't actually pass policies to improve the lives of marginalized people. And me being a member of the LGBTQ community, community myself, I've watched them my entire life pander to our community for votes and then not actually fight for our community. So that's what I mean by this performative wokeness. They don't ever back it up with policies. You know, I would right. say that while, while I do see overt racism, racism in the Republican Party, I'll flat out be honest about that. I see what I would call covert racism in the Democratic Party, where they try to be the saviors. They try to say, you know, we're going to help all these people. We are the party of black and brown people. And then they don't actually pass policies or do anything to help black and brown people. So Republicans stab us in the front. I would say Democrats stab us in the back. So I'm not going to be under any illusion that the Republican Party is trying to help 
you know, people of color. They're not, you know, they just don't actually present, they don't actually present themselves as the party that's going to do something for people of color. So they're not the ones who like the Democrats will pander for, you know, marginalized communities votes and then continue to stab them in the back. So that's where, for me, Democrats don't get to use the racism argument anymore or the homophobia argument anymore to divide us when they're not doing anything for the marginalized communities either. They are literally creating this false sense of hope where, because we got to be real, they, people are pushed down in this society, Mm -hmm. poor people, working class people. Yes. Black and Brown people, LGBTQ people are still pushed down upon in our society more than, than, than middle-class people and, and ruling class people. And, but, What I'm trying to say is I'm no longer allowing the Democrats or we should allow the Democrats to use this kind of hollow identity politics to divide us and to divide the people from coming together on big issues where we can live in a better society. Because I would say that they're both. I have to I have to bounce, Brian, but um, I wanted to say thank you for this unruly discussion because we needed it. And we're going to have another one on Tuesday. You're going to be on my show, The Politics of Survival. And that's going to be on YouTube and Rockfin. And we can um, talk about all this again um, and more because you know more stuff's going to happen over the weekend. Absolutely. (laughs) Tara, thank you so much. I can't believe it's not. Thank you so much, Tara. This has been the longest show we've ever done. It's gone way over. (laughs) And I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the callers. And I appreciate Rob and everyone. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Thank you all. Take care.